This message comes from NPR sponsor, Progressive, and it's Name Your Price Tool. Say how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show coverage options within your budget. Visit Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. This is the 1A Podcast. I'm David Gurra. Thanks so much for being here. It's time once again for the news roundup. And if you will just give me a second here, I want to check in with the control room, make sure that we're good to go. We're good to go? We've got so many people here that I think we are uh, kind of melting the servers. Okay. And um, our guests, we've got three of them. I'm assuming that um, they're all ready. Are you there? Can you hear us? I'm here. Okay. And (laughs) sorry, I've just, I've lost track of, uh, of what we're doing here. I am running for president of the United States to lead our great American comeback. Well, believe me, those of us who work in live radio or live television feel your pain. Lots of politics to come and knowing well how good a team we've got here. I'm confident we're not going to have any of the technical glitches a certain Republican governor had to navigate when he announced his candidacy for his party's nomination on a multi-billionaire social media platform just a couple of days ago, as I knock on wood here in the studio in New York. Allow me to introduce my guests. Benji Sarlin is the Washington bureau chief at Semaphore. Wendy Benjaminson is the deputy managing editor at Bloomberg News. And from the New York Times, we've got Cheryl Gay Stolberg, who covers health, policy, and politics. Welcome to all of you. Great to be here. Thanks for having us. Well, the clock keeps, keeps ticking, and the U.S. is edging closer to a potential default as we wait to see if Congress will raise or suspend the nation's debt limit. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen says it's highly likely the U.S. government will run out of cash if Congress doesn't act by June 1st. That's just a few days from now. Wendy, let me start with you. Where do these negotiations stand here as we head into the long weekend? Well, we're sort of in, you know, crouched and ready for for something to happen. We, we really believe that we are almost there. There is a great desire on both sides to get this done today. That way they have 72 hours over the weekend for the bill to wind its way out of committee into the House floor, which is the required amount of time. And then they can hold a vote on Tuesday, which would be one day before uh, you know they run out of cash. And Mitch McConnell has um, been liking to remind us that it was 48 hours when the, before the X date when they reached a deal in 2011. That is, I think, cold comfort to a lot of people. There is still a number of sticking points. The biggest one, apparently, from the Democratic side, are the Republicans' demands for work requirements for some social programs, but a lot of the spending um, caps and defense spending figures have apparently have been worked out. Cheryl Gay Solberg, let me get a gut check from you. I'm going to hazard a guess here. <laughs> I'm not certain, but I think three years ago or 10 years ago, you and I were, were talking about this. I know that you and I have both covered these over and over again. And so I'm just curious sort of how you feel at this moment, as we see Congress kind of crouching and waiting, the White House as well to, to see what happens here. Does it feel familiar to you or is there something different about this moment? Do you have any sort of worry about all of this coming together on the short timetable that we just had described there by Wendy? No, th- this is really like Groundhog Day. I've often said that Congress and Washington maybe more broadly is like high school. They do everything at the last minute with a deadline looming. And usually what they do is kick the can down the road. (laughs) And we're reporting this morning that um, they're close to a compromise and that if it can be enacted, it would raise the debt ceiling for two years, 
shocker, passed the 2024 <laughs> election. <laughs> this is just, this is really classic um, Washington. Nobody wants a default. Everyone knows that it would be disastrous for the federal government to default on its obligations. It would throw the economy into a tailspin. Republicans and Democrats would be blamed alike. So it's just a matter of each side kind of wringing out what it can out of this, you know, these last minute negotiations, which really kind of fall along um, very philosophical partisan lines, right? Republicans want to impose work requirements on public benefits programs. They want strict caps on discretionary spending, but they don't want caps on defense spending. You know, the Biden administration, the president started out wanting a clean debt ceiling, uh, just a, you know, automatic lifting with no conditions. He's clearly not going to get that. And um, he's going to have to, you know, now try to sell whatever cuts are imposed to uh, his party. Uh, the Speaker of the House, uh, Kevin McCarthy, has been fond of talking to reporters this week. He's done a lot of scrums. It's been hard to separate him from TV cameras, at least Fox News and Fox Business TV cameras. Here's what he said to reporters outside the White House on Monday. I simply believe, like any household, like any business, like any state government, when you're this far out of whack, you have to spend less than you spent last year. Wendy, you heard Cheryl there describing sort of what's in the, the, the main story in the New York Times this morning by uh, Jim Tankersley and Katie Edmondson focusing on the contours of, of this deal. I'm very curious how Democrats, particularly more progressive Democrats, are responding to sort of what's been outlined in, in that piece and what we've learned here in recent hours. They're really worried. They, um, they do not like this deal at all. It caps, um, if, if Cheryl's in our reporting, or excuse me, the Times and Bloomberg's reporting is right, this caps, I mean, of course it is, uh, it caps <laughs> spending at the uh, fiscal, I mean, if it's, it's right now, we just don't know what the deal is going to look like. Fair enough. Um, but it caps spending at the fiscal year, at, at this year's levels, which isn't enough for some progressives. They are very worried about Biden conceding, giving any ground on these work requirements. They are worried about um, the uh, $10 billion that may be shaved off the IRS spending um, and a lot of other things in the defense spending there are a lot of things for progressive Democrats not to like in this, and there are a lot of things for right-wing Freedom Caucus members not to like. And Kevin McCarthy in the, as you said, five gaggles a day that he's been doing, um, has often said, just like you know anyone who's about to make a compromise, not everyone's going to be happy. The left is also upset that Biden is going to Camp David this weekend. Kevin McCarthy is staying at the Capitol and, and um, working through, and they think that the messaging would be a lot better if Biden were in town, you know, working his little tail off to get this done. Let me turn to the gentleman from, from Semaphore. That's Benji Sarlin and Florida Republican Matt Gates uh, told Semaphore that he and his fellow conservatives, quote, don't feel like we should negotiate with our hostage. Then the Congressional Progressive Caucus spoke to reporters on Wednesday. Democratic Congressman Jan Schakowsky from Illinois brought a picture of one of her constituents, and she alluded to that hostage comment. This is a hostage from my district. Her name is Janet, and she called my office in tears. She was so afraid. She is 64 years old. Her income is $1,200 a month. She has chronic mental illness. And she is so afraid that if they do what they're going to do, that she cannot pay the rent. She cannot pay for any food. She can't pay for the medication that she needs. 
Benji Sarlin, a couple of questions here. First of all, who is the hostage? As we talk about the hostage in the context of that comment from uh, from Matt Gates, and then my second question is, we, we could see this kind of handshake deal between the negotiators, the White House, and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, uh, but then we just turn the page to a new chapter and help us understand sort of how fraught or difficult that next chapter is going to be as we see, uh, yes, the Speaker of the House and the minority leader trying to sell this deal, this agreement, to, to their respective caucuses. So the hostage in this case, to answer your question, is the U.S. economy, okay. right? We've, we've talked a little about what happens if there's the fault and, you know, basically you end up with a deep recession pretty much overnight with global implications is pretty much what every analysis would tell you. So the reason Democrats in the White House, too, were jumping on that Matt Gates comment is this gets to uh, to your second question about kind of the fundal, fundamental disagreement over what is going on right now in negotiations, which is that... Republicans argue that this isn't a hostage crisis. Of course, you know, there's not going to be a default. We're just doing what, you know, we've done in the past, you know, like we did in 2011 with Obama, which is you use this as an occasion to negotiate some deficit reduction. You know, it's just an occasion for us to talk to which Democrats and not just, you know, progressives, you know, lots of, you know, more some of the most centrist Democrats really share this view. What you're doing is holding us hostage. And in fact, some of them have been urging the White House not to negotiate at all over the debt ceiling, which was their initial stance, and say, look, you're just not allowed to use this hostage. It's too dangerous to every few years have a hostage crisis in which if something goes wrong, the entire global economy you know, gets frozen, basically. Um, and so that is one issue right off the bat where before you even get to the substance of, the deal, of a deal, mm-hmm. um, President Biden will have to convince his members look, this wasn't really us, you know, paying a ransom. Uh, We were technically negotiating separately over the budget. You know, this debt ceiling thing we stood strong on. And on the Republican side, Matt Gaetz is making that comment in the context of objecting to almost any deal. His interpretation is his conservative wing, Mm -hmm. which he's one of the ringleaders of, put forth a bill already that passed the House with, you know, pretty severe cuts that target Biden's agenda directly and that they shouldn't negotiate any further. The Senate should just pass it and send it to Biden Mm -hmm. and he should sign it. So both of those sides are going to have to be uh, placated when it comes to spinning this deal afterwards. Senator Bernie Sanders says President Biden should uh, invoke the 14th Amendment to resolve this crisis. The Vermont Independent spoke with reporters on Friday. Is this a perfect solution? Is imposing the 14th Amendment a perfect solution? No, it is not. But using the 14th Amendment would allow the United States to continue to pay its bills on time and without delay, prevent an economic catastrophe, and prevent devastating cuts to some of the most vulnerable people in this country. It should be exercised if necessary. Wendy, very quickly here, we had Wally Adiemo, the Deputy Treasury Secretary on CNN this, this morning. He said, that's not on the table. There is no backup plan. <laughs> do, you, do you think he's, he's big earnest in saying so? Oh, I do think the administration is being very earnest in saying they don't want to do the 14th Amendment. And one thing that um, members on each you know, wing of each party like to suggest is to do something unilateral when you can't get Congress to yeah. do it, which the president should do it himself. The trouble is that this will be immediately challenged in court. And that makes the um, United States debts even more uncertain because as it's wending its way through the courts and waiting for this, maybe up to the Supreme Court, trying to get them to rule mm-hmm. on whether you can do it this way, um, U.S. debt would be um, an uncertain, payments would be uncertain, there and no go. one wants that. We're covering the week's biggest headlines. We'll be back with more in just a moment. Stay with us.
Support for this NPR podcast and the following message come from Amgen, a biotechnology pioneer leading the fight against the world's toughest diseases such as cancer, heart disease, asthma, and osteoporosis. In a new era of human health, Amgen continues to accelerate the pace of change, operating sustainably and drawing upon deep knowledge of science to push beyond what's known today. With each decade, they reliably deliver powerful new therapies to patients. Learn more at Amgen.com. On NPR's Throughline. We cannot function for 24 hours without COBOL because it's in our smartphone, our tablet, our laptop. And as a consequence, the lives of the people living in that part of the Congo descended into just a catastrophe. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. Let's get back to the conversation. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis announced Wednesday evening he is running for president. The Republican hopeful delivered that message on Twitter spaces with Twitter's owner, Elon Musk. But much like that fiery SpaceX rocket launch last month, there were a few glitches. Sorry about that. We, we've got so many people here that I think we are, we are uh, kind of melting the servers. So they just keep crashing, huh? Cheryl, there were more than uh, 20 minutes of technical glitches leading up to that announcement. Why did Ron DeSantis choose Twitter to make this announcement? So I think this falls into the category of it seemed like a good idea at the time. Uh Um, I think that DeSantis um, thought it would be novel. He wanted to grab headlines. He wanted to dominate attention. He wanted to look tech savvy. And maybe more than anything, he wanted to... Uh, tap into Elon Musk's 140 million Twitter followers. Um, Musk has also kind of emerged as a conservative champion of the of the Twitter wars of the of the culture wars rather, and he um, he has said that he would support DeSantis. He seems to have soured on Trump, but frankly, I never really understood why DeSantis would do this. First, why would you announce yourself? as a presidential candidate and pair yourself with some with someone else why didn't he want the spotlight all on him um i'm kind of surprised his his advisors agreed to that and also why would he do it without visuals this was uh twitter audio um you would think that if you were running for president you'd want to come out you'd be surrounded by you know the american flags by cheering supporters um, you'd give a speech that then with clips that could be, you know, aired on television, et cetera. This was really a very novel way to do this. It was a big gamble and it kind of went bust. This was the, the prelude to, I suppose, more traditional rollout after that Twitter announcement. The conservative cable network Fox News had a banner uh, on its website that read, quote, want to actually see and hear Ron DeSantis <laughs> tune into Fox News. He did go on the, the network a couple of times after this. Benji Sarlin, what do you think this incident, this rollout, says about the role that Twitter is playing, could play for Republican candidates in in 2024? It says a lot. So DeSantis made this decision at a particularly interesting time for Twitter, which is that Elon Musk has taken over. 
Um, Elon Musk is a fan of DeSantis. He has become increasingly invested in the culture wars, especially from the kind of very online far-right perspective. Those are the accounts that Musk personally engages in the most. But he's also been – it's not just his account – trying to turn Twitter into something of a conservative media rival, perhaps to Fox News even. So the biggest example is that Tucker Carlson, you know, after being fired at Fox News, announced that he was going to do some version of a show on Twitter. And shortly after The Daily Wire, you know, whose hosts have been extremely influential in the kind of culture wars over, for example, you know, LGBT rights and some of the laws around around those in states like Florida, they also are going to be moving some of their podcasts to Twitter. So there's definitely and, – and Fox, meanwhile, has never looked weaker since they got rid of Carlson. They're under – a lot of pressure from, you know, from competing business interests, from political interests, from audience interests. They're they're facing cable rivals like Newsmax. There's a lot of room, at least, for something like Twitter to plausibly step into that space. And partly for that reason, and this is another reason DeSantis choosing Twitter was risky, mm. Fox was incredibly eager to play up how much of a disaster his rollout was. From the second these, like, technical problems started happening, they were just blaring headlines, as you mentioned. You know, about how Twitter can't trust them. Elon Musk's a flop. You know, get your real news on Fox News. So uh, that that is definitely explains, you know, why they'd have such an interest. Twitter is becoming more influential in the conservative space. Well, this field is is growing also this week. Another GOP candidate entered the ring. South Carolina Senator Tim Scott announced on Monday he is making a run for president. He is the only black Republican elected to the Senate since 1967. I disrupt their narrative. I threaten their control. The truth of my life disrupts their lies. Cheryl Gay Stolberg, I I imagine you were watching that announcement in North Charleston earlier this week. What is Senator Tim Scott's message and how does it differ from what we've heard from Ron DeSantis and indeed the the presumptive Republican frontrunner Donald Trump, the current uh, Republican frontrunner Donald Trump? So I was watching and I was very struck by the way it it differs not only from Trump and DeSantis, but also from from Biden and the Democrats. I think Tim Scott is giving a message, an upbeat message of appealing to the better angels. Um, He is his is a message of, you know, optimism and not anger and grievance. Uh, He said in his speech, he quoted his grandfather um, saying you can be bitter or better. He's got a great personal story, sort of an up from the bootstraps story. His grandfather picked cotton in the deep south. Um, he was raised by a single mom. He was seven when his parents divorced. He and the the mother and the brother shared a single bedroom for a while, and uh, he was flunking out in high school until a um, you know a, a mentor came his way and and really encouraged him. So he's got kind of um, almost a Reagan esque attitude. He's not about the culture wars and about woke. He's more about economic opportunity, and I think that really. Um, that kind of upbeat message distinguishes him. And then with respect to Biden and the Democrats, he's also talking about the radical left is pushing us into a culture war, a culture of grievance. Um, and, you know, that's not what what he's about. It's it's victimhood or victory, he said. I choose freedom and hope and opportunity. Cheryl, you talk about this kind of Reagan-esque quality to him. Um, wh- what is your sense of the appetite for that uh, in this day and age? I think that's really the big that's the big question, um, is what is the Republican Party about right now? Um, we know that Tim Scott is not 
polling as well as Trump or DeSantis. DeSantis is right now 30 points behind Trump. I'm not exactly sure where Tim Scott is, but he has an advantage in some way in that he is an unknown. And that he can turn to his advantage by introducing himself to Americans who who really don't know him. Uh, I do think, though, it's a challenge for him to turn the party away from that kind of uh, grievance and anger message. Um, he himself has said Republicans will have to decide between, quote, grievance or greatness. You've given me a segue here, and I mentioned Donald Trump just a moment ago. He was in the news this week because of his legal challenges. Trump pleading guilty, uh, not guilty, excuse me, last month to 34 felony charges accusing him of falsifying business records and paying hush money during the 2016 presidential campaign. Well, this week, the New York judge announced the former president's trial date. It will start in March of next year, which also happens to be uh, an election year, in case anyone is unaware of that. Uh, Wendy, what could this timing mean uh, for his presidential run-in for the campaign? It's going to be a very, very interesting Republican primary season. By the time his trial for the hush money payments or for misusing business funds comes along, he may have already won or certainly will have competed in Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, and perhaps other key states. Super, they, The Republican primary calendar isn't fully set yet, but um, Super Tuesday usually happens in um, early March, and this trial is set for late March. Trump knew that and became extremely angry with the judge. There was, you know, in the courtroom when the trial was being set, you know, he was talking to his lawyers and um, and he has uh, asked, he, he has said that his First Amendment rights are being violated because the judge said, please don't plan any campaign stops during this trial. You need to be here. You need to be present and aiding in your defense. And um, he, he was like, well, wait, wait a minute. This is a, I've got to go out and talk about how much this is a witch hunt against me. What are you, crazy? So um, he will have that. He will also face, as soon as next week, possibly, the special counsel for the Justice Department, Jack Smith, um, will make a decision, a public decision on a charge of po- obstruction of justice, possibly, for him or his close associates for refusing the um, pleas and finally a subpoena and finally a search warrant to get the classified documents that he took with him from the White House to Mar-a-Lago. So that's coming up very soon this summer. And then Fannie Willis, the district attorney in Georgia, in August is going to probably make a decision on the charges against him and his associates for overturning the election or for their attempts to overturn the election in 2020. So he's got a big mess going on. And then, of course, there's Letitia James, the New York attorney general, who has some charges against investigations against the Trump organization. So all of this will be going on while he's running for president and none of it can stop him from running or serving as president. So it's it's the weirdest one I've ever seen. Benji Sarlin, you have Wendy there outlining, I think, four separate legal matters that the president's having to contend with right now. There, there is a fifth. Uh, on May 9th, a jury found the former president liable for defamation and sexual assault against E. Jean Carroll and vice columnist. She was awarded $5 million. This week, she is seeking an additional $10 million in a new defamation lawsuit. Um, Give us the backstory here. This this dates back to, yes, that initial verdict, uh, but also the town hall that the former president did uh, with CNN, what, the, the night after that? It's, it's fairly straightforward in that regard. If a jury finds you liable for 
defaming someone by saying negative things about them and calling them a liar. And then you go on a town hall that was seen by 3 million people on national television and say much the same thing and continue to say the same things on Truth Social, you know, just criticizing her in extremely personal terms. It might make sense that she says, hey, this is the same behavior. (laughs) Like, perhaps I should be awarded more money or there should be a separate suit further down the line, potentially. So uh, Trump has obviously not been deterred uh, by the results of this lawsuit, you know, which he is trying to appeal um, and is clearly going to be engaging in the same attacks on on Eugene Carroll. But there may be legal consequences and this kind of aura of, of invulnerability around Trump where, you know, nothing he says seems to matter or have any consequences that's starting to be pierced right now with pretty much across all these legal cases. Another legal battle looming over a Trump re-election campaign is the January 6th insurrection. This week we saw the longest sentence to date for an organizer of the attack on the U.S. Capitol. On Thursday, a federal judge sentenced Stuart Rhodes, the founder of the far-right group The Oath Keepers, to 18 years in prison. Rhodes was convicted of seditious conspiracy for his role in the attack. Wendy, we don't have audio, we don't have video of the sentencing, but I was kind of following along as reporters who were in the courthouse were tweeting the back and forth between the judge and what the judge said to Stuart Rhodes during that sentencing. And it was a, a pretty extraordinarily strong message from, from that judge. It really was, and I have the quote in front of me, so I'd be happy to read it. He's Judge Mehta said, You, sir, present an ongoing threat and a peril to this country, to the republic, and the very fabric of our democracy. Pretty good stuff. Um, for a guy who could have been sentenced to 25 years in prison, he only only got 18. Of course, he's 57 or 58 years old, so he will be an old man um, when he gets out. He, on the other hand, compares himself to Alexander Solzhenitsyn, one of the great Soviet dissidents and a political prisoner, and says that there is no reason for him to... Um, to, to be in prison. However, he was the lead organizer of the Oath Keepers who stormed the Capitol in an effort to overturn the election. Um, the interesting thing about Stuart Rhodes is also that he was a Capitol Hill aide for a while and a Yale-educated lawyer, which is so hard to picture now that we see him in his flannels and his vests and the eye patch. He just, you know, it doesn't, doesn't fit the, the normal picture. Ask you about an, another sort of legal issue here, Wendy, if I could. There was a, a loss for an election denier in Arizona after Republican Carrie Lake lost her bid for governor six months ago. She brought a lawsuit challenging the validity of the election there. And after a three-day trial, a Maricopa County judge ruled uh, on Monday of this week that Lake failed to prove any misconduct had taken place. Just curious what your takeaways are from that trial out of Arizona, from the verdict, and sort of what, what this means, again, uh, now so long after the, the, the election took place. It's it's just kind of amazing how the idea of the graceful concession is um, in the dustbin of history. Now she she lost the race. Um, she immediately challenged it, and the um, you know she refused to concede. She filed a suit saying that the Maricopa County, which is the most populous county in um, Arizona and home to Phoenix, um, that they the county didn't verify the signatures on early ballots the way they should be. So there was a three-day trial, um, and the judge who was appointed by a Republican governor said she didn't meet the high bar. Um, So, you know, we are seeing this pattern where election deniers are doing all the public-facing, it was a fraud, the radical left is out to get me, et cetera, et cetera, and then they go into a courtroom, and no matter who appointed these judges, they are throwing these cases out. She is still going to use this, she is still using this to... um, 
to raise money. She's possibly going to run against Kirsten Sinema um, for a U.S. Senate seat. And she clearly very much wants to be Donald Trump's running mate were he to be the Republican nominee. So there, there's just no stopping this woman. <laughs> Benji Sarlin, we keep looking for, for the end of, of, of this this period, the end of this this chapter, and I wonder sort of if you see this this case, this verdict as, as being that sort of <laughs> when you have these election deniers ceasing to look back at the last election and I guess train their their eyes on the next one. Well, it, it's hard to say when the next election is about the previous election, right. which is, of course, what happened with Carrie Lake's first election, where she was, you know, very much running on the idea the previous election was stolen, just as I'm sure she would be in her next election. And we're seeing this, of course, with Donald Trump now, where, you know, yes, he's running for president again, which is, I suppose, some acknowledgement that he is not president currently. But much of what he's talking about is, for example, pardoning January 6 rioters, and even potentially, you know, the Proud Boys, and, you know, have been found convicted of sedition. Uh, it's, it's, you know, very much still an a forward-moving election that is very much backwards-looking when it comes to election denial. And this is now a kind of litmus test for these Republican candidates, right, Benji? You had Ron DeSantis asked himself if he would consider pardoning January 6th defendants. It was very notable. Now, DeSantis sort of danced around a bit, but it was a very hard-edged answer. He was, you know, using a, a talking point you often hear saying, well, you know, comparing them to Black Lives Matter protesters and saying, were they treated the same way as they were for civil dis- disobedience or instances of rioting? Uh, yeah, I mean, he is clearly trying to get in with the same voters. It's the News Roundup. We've got plenty more still ahead. Coming up, we remember the legendary Tina Turner. Stay with us. This message is brought to you by NPR sponsor, Progressive Insurance. You call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. Tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options within your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Okay, close your eyes for a second. Now imagine you're on your dream vacation. No work calls to answer, no text messages to respond to, just your suitcase and an opportunity. The opportunity to just take yourself out of your routine and travel deeper. How to actually take that dream trip. That's on the Life Kit Podcast from NPR. Let's get back to the news roundup. Tributes continue to pour in for the queen of rock and roll. Tina Turner died on Wednesday. She was 83. She rose to fame alongside husband Ike in the 1960s. Turner eventually divorced her abusive partner in 1978 and went on to find even greater success as a solo artist. Okay, Stolberg, I can't see you, but I'm going to venture to guess you are tapping your toes as you as you listen to that. What was it about Tina Turner that made her so popular for so long? Well, I think, first of all, you can't deny that she had an amazing voice. She had star power. She had sex appeal. But I think Tina Turner had something else. She was a survivor, and a lot of women 
knew that. Tina Turner really broke the silence about domestic abuse 40 years ago when nobody was talking about domestic abuse. And just like you said, she divorced her husband. He was abusive. She went on to really even greater heights without him. And she was unsparing in her description of what she suffered. She talked about him burning her with coffee, beating her with shoes and hangers, breaking her jaw and nose before they went on stage and performed together. And I think for that reason, Tina Turner's music, Tina Turner was beyond her music. Mm -hmm. She resonated with a lot of women and that element of her, that kind of survivor, you know, I'm going to go on and triumph and come out on top no matter what, came through her music and it also came through her writing in her memoirs. Well said. Uh, And I think back on what Viola Davis said about Tina Turner calling her, quote, our first symbol of excellence and unbridled ownership of sexuality. Tributes pouring in from the president, vice president, any number of people here. Um, Wendy, help us understand how much ground she broke as an artist, uh, as a woman of color and, and as a role model. She broke tremendous ground in in all those departments, and I couldn't agree more with Cheryl um, about her her strength as a domestic abuse survivor, her in in an era when, you know, feminism was only an idea, you know, some people had, um, but it certainly wasn't part of the culture. She was, as again, as Cheryl said, um, unabashedly sexual, unabashedly strong. You know, she was so muscular. She was so strong. And um, I, you know, I'll cop to being old enough to having been a kid, <laughs> kid when she was doing her first her first bit of stardom, and then again, you know, was around for her comeback in the 80s. Um, in, in fact, found the vinyl the other day of, of the 80s album. And um, the uh, she was, uh, you know, she she spoke to any large number of group of people and, and made other people's songs better, like Proud Mary that was originally done by Creedence Clearwater, um, is a much bigger hit when, when she put her power to it. We're going to make some more time to honor the life and career of Tina Turner next week. We'd love to keep hearing from you. What special memories do you have that are tied to her music? Is there one song that's a favorite of yours? Maybe it's her life story that's left a lasting mark on you. Send us an email, 1A at WAMU.org, or you can use our app, 1A Vox Pop. We'll share more of your memories next week on 1A. Benji Sarlin, let me pivot here to, to ask you about a report that we got this week from the U.S. Surgeon General on social media use among young people in this country, uh, calling it one of the leading drivers of a youth mental health crisis. Uh, Vivek Murthy making that announcement on Tuesday following the release of that report that said social media uh, is a major contributor to anxiety, to depression uh, among American teens. What actions will the Surgeon General take as a result of that to, uh, to tackle this problem? Well, the important thing here is getting the conversation going. So these guidelines are meant to, one, give parents their own resource. Uh, there are recommendations here for, you know, logging off, for having family time, for monitoring, you know, your children's social media use and restricting it. But there's also guidance for tech companies recommending that they take their own steps to make it easier for parents to do that. And there's also, you know, a recommendation towards Congress to perhaps look at examining this themselves. So I think those are the things that might end up with more teeth. But it's worth noting that this isn't just, you know, an idle conversation here. We're starting to see, uh, you know, in both parties, uh, politicians and elected officials really starting to look at this issue and not just accept it like I think we used to in the internet that 
it's the internet. You can't control it. Kids will find what they find. No, we're starting to see real specific laws coming around trying to restrict what people under 18 can do. Or in the case of TikTok, which of course has a national security element around China as well, but is also discussed in this space, to try to just ban it outright altogether. Um, so this is definitely a sign of a conversation that's happening well beyond the Surgeon General's office. Benji, let me tease out the last part of what you're saying there. I'll say first, you know, what stood out to me about the report was this insistence from the Surgeon General that the onus for these changes can't fall on parents alone, that uh, policymakers have to, to deal with, with more of this uh, as well. But you, you mentioned TikTok and these prospective bans, and uh, I've noted more countries uh, and, 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 and states are, are looking at banning this app owned by the Chinese company ByteDance. Um, how much traction is this getting? How do you see this sort of playing out? Of course, we had this suit uh, filed against Montana by, by TikTok's parent company uh, after a ban was put in place there this week. Well, our reporter Morgan Chalfant has been covering this uh, extensively from Congress, from the White House, and just sees tremendous bipartisan momentum around this. And there are the members who are willing to stand up for TikTok in some way are, for the most part, few and far between. There are some progressives who see this as kind of China bashing, uh, that, you know, that, that think the threat from TikTok is exaggerated on those grounds, or argue that it's, you know, just interfering with youth culture that is, you know, moving on its own. It's an unnecessary panic. So some of the younger members have been bringing that up. And then on the right, there are some libertarians who object to banning TikTok on those grounds. So you have someone like Rand Paul, for example, who are saying that, you know, this is essentially what China would do, you know, take somewhat authoritarian steps to remove speech that they do not like or a business that they crack down on a business that they do not like without a good reason. But beyond that, there is a large middle that is very uncomfortable with TikTok, uh, both for fears that users' data might be exposed to access by China authority, uh, Chinese authorities, um, both on sometimes on the simple business ground that U.S. businesses that are engaged in similar actions are largely restricted in China, and yet China is allowed to run free with a you know a parent company that has an app that's huge in America. But they also are bringing up some of the things the Surgeon General is, which is they are very worried about some of the behavior they see. Uh, associated with social media apps like TikTok. And TikTok has been the brightest star lately. So it's coming in for a lot of criticism on those grounds. Uh, I mentioned Montana. Let's stay in the American West here for just a minute, Benji. I'll ask you one more question. I, we, we did have this big announcement this week about the Colorado River. Uh, 40 million people who rely on that river can sleep a little bit easier for now over the weekend. California, Arizona, Nevada agreed to cut back on how much water they're going to take from that river over the next three years. This river system has been really on the verge of collapse for our warming climate, climate and over-reliance on that river's dwindling supply. How significant is the deal brokered here? How much do we know about sort of the intricacies of it? Well, it gets into a lot of intricate issues because there's so many stakeholders because we're talking about water, <laughs> you know, the absolute lifeblood of life itself here. And it has so many different uses. You use it for electrical power in these states. You know, if, when the river, when the Colorado River is dwindling, you get less hydropower. You use it for agriculture. You know, if you're using up too much water, you know, on alfalfa sprouts, then that is affecting people in other states who are using it, you know, for their showers and baths. Uh, so it's just a tremendously complicated set of negotiations. But we're going to see a lot more of this as there are more effects of climate change, because these do not fit neatly in state lines. These do not fit neatly in country lines. It's going to take some kind of agreement or some kind of outside arbiter 
to monitor this. And in this case, perhaps the most significant thing is that there was an actual agreement between mm-hmm. the governors to compromise in some way and each bear the brunt of reducing their water usage versus, you know, a lengthy court battle that forced one or the other to comply with something or an outside regulator forcing them. It's interesting that across party lines, too, they were able to find a solution here. Well, a little more than two years ago, Amanda Gorman caught the nation's attention. We will not be turned around or interrupted by intimidation because we know our inaction and inertia will be the inheritance of the next generation. Our blunders become their burdens. But one thing is certain. Gorman became America's youngest inaugural poet when she spoke at President Biden's swearing in in 2021. If we merge mercy with might and might with right, then love becomes our legacy and change our children's birthright. Now, Gorman is 25, and she shared on social media this week that her inauguration poem, The Hill We Climb, some of which you heard there, was challenged by a parent in Miami-Dade County in Florida. The district deemed the poem inappropriate based on that complaint for young readers and moved its placement in the library from the elementary section to the middle school section. Wendy Benjaminson, what more do we know about what happened here? This is causing all kinds of blowback. This this was a, a real head scratcher, um, and it was uh, it was in both sections of the library, elementary and middle school. So it was removed from the elementary school section and, and moved to the middle school section. This was after one mother, not not a committee, not a petition, not a big school board drama setting meeting setting. Um, this was one mother who has now, I think it was the Miami Herald who reported this out, not only has admitted that she's not a reader and didn't read the poem or hear it, apparently, at the inaugural, she also has on her Facebook profile a photograph of a book on a stand that is the Protocol of the Elders of Zion, which is a book that is on every Nazi's nightstand. It is a grotesquely anti-Semitic and racist um, book that, you know, that apparently she put as her Facebook profile picture. And so she called it indirect hate speech. And the schools, the schools that are so nervous now about having a crackdown from the Florida state government with Ron DeSantis's interest in limiting books, um, just quickly responded and, and acted, even though, as I said, the woman didn't even read the poem and know what it was she didn't like about it. Benji Sarlin, uh, put this in a, in a broader context for us. How do you see this fitting into this sort of larger ongoing story? We were talking about Governor Ron DeSantis at the top of the show. Story in Florida, but yes, nationwide as well. The key phrase here is parents' rights. That's how these uh, book restrictions are always sold. That's how the legislation around them is uh, is portrayed. And of course, Ron DeSantis, you know, takes great exception to the phrase book ban. You know, the argument he's been making is that these are not technically book bans. They just give a channel for parents to register a complaint, you know, that goes through the school board, goes to the library, can be reviewed. Maybe in some cases like this, the book is moved to another category. But he argues nothing is being banned. Well, but part of the issue here politically and what this debate is about is that you are ceding control of this new system of determining what is offensive and what not to that parent in your class. And we all know who our parents, who that parent is. So everyone can name, you know, one person in their school who is complaining about everything or who in this case has extremist views or who is just, 
you know, out of step with others. And you could imagine this for left and right, of course, depending on the circumstance. And that also means you're going to be politically on the hook for these cases. I mean, it's a case of you break it, you bought it to some degree. If you want to give parents carte blanche over determining, uh, you know, over raising objections over books, there's going to raise some crazy objections. Yes, a book relocation, the, the new the way of saying book ban, I suppose. And uh, kind of along these lines, Cheryl Gay-Stolberg, let me turn to you just about uh, what happened, uh, I guess, uh, you know, a couple of days ago, Target removing certain Pride Month merchandise from its stores in a statement that retailer saying, quote, since introducing this year's collection, we have experienced threats impacting our team members' sense of safety and well-being while at work. What reaction has Target's decision received? And maybe you can fit this kind of into th- this larger issue of how companies are are trying to to navigate this and really getting themselves kind of all twisted up. Yeah, I was going to say you can actually see kind of a direct thread between the the book banning conversation we just had and what's happening here. I think this this grows out of a tension between companies like Target and other companies, trying Disney included, trying to appeal to a growing market of LGBTQ Americans. Seven percent of adult Americans identify as LGBTQ, and uh, sort of the culture wars that are um, that are embracing America. Uh, In this case, Target uh, had a quote-unquote tuck-friendly swimsuit for women that it was part of its new Pride collection. June is Pride Month. And these were swimsuits targeted to transgender women, created a big backlash. Megyn Kelly, the former Fox News host, lashed out. And rather than endure that backlash, Target just simply decided to withdraw these products. That does it for our domestic portion of the News Roundup. My thanks to Semaphore's Benji Sarlin, Wendy Benjaminson at Bloomberg News, and Cheryl Gay Stolberg from The New York Times. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll dive into the biggest stories from around the world. For the international edition of the News Roundup, we'll have the latest on Ukraine and Europe's latest steps toward fighting climate change. Stay with us. We've got a lot to get into. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Integrative Therapeutics. With vitamins and supplements previously available only through practitioners, including Cortisol Manager. Unlock your best self with clinician-curated supplements from Integrative Therapeutics, now on Amazon. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Lisa. Good sleep should come naturally, and with the new Natural Hybrid mattress, it can. A collaboration between Lisa and West Elm, the Natural Hybrid is expertly crafted from natural latex, natural wool, and certified safe foams to elevate your sleep sanctuary and support a greener tomorrow. Plus, every purchase helps fuel Lisa's work with shelters and those in need. Visit lisa.com to learn more. That's l-e-e-s-a dot This message comes from NPR sponsor Greenlight. Want to teach your kids financial literacy? With Greenlight, kids and teens use a debit card of their own, while parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and savings in the app. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sell without needing to code or design. Just bring your best ideas and Shopify will help you open up shop. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash NPR. It's the Global News Roundup. 
Today, we'll talk about the biggest headlines from the war in Ukraine, and we'll check in on news out of Australia and the West African nation of Guinea. Joining me this hour, Jack Detch, national security reporter at Foreign Policy. Here with me in studio, Katrina Manson, who covers cyber and national security at Bloomberg News. And in London today, David Rennie, Beijing bureau chief for The Economist and host of the Drum Tower podcast. Welcome to all of you. Thank you very much for being here. Let's start with the latest news uh, out of Ukraine. This morning, a Russian strike hit a hospital, killing at least two people and injuring dozens of others. Uh, Ukraine's President Vladimir Zelensky calling that attack, quote, another crime against humanity. David Rennie, I'll start with you. We don't have a lot of details at this point, but what do you make of this, another medical complex, hospital complex being targeted in this war? This has unfortunately been the story since the beginning of the invasion uh, more than a year ago. You've seen a real kind of Uh, propaganda taking precedence over the normal rules of war. So several times so far, we have seen uh, Russians accused of attacking clearly civilian targets, including ambulances, hospitals, and maternity hospitals. If you remember those awful scenes early on of of a woman being taken out of a maternity hospital. And instead of having any chance of trying to uncover whether really serious war crimes are taking place on European soil, it immediately descends into this very familiar, very depressing you know, they say, they say, kind of the Ukrainians, the Russians pointing fingers and accusing each other of committing identical crimes. I think for the outside world, this latest attack is just further kind of proof that uh, this war, both parties to this war are still determined to fight uh, to the last kind of drop of blood. And uh, the idea of kind of peace anytime soon is uh, is not realistic. Jack Tesh, let me ask you about another facet of, of this war, and that is you have these groups of sort of anti-Putin Russian nationals who are who are now working kind of in alignment with, with Ukrainians. Um, help us understand sort of that story and how it's developing. The picture is still as clear as mud, really, uh-huh. but uh, the, the group that staged the attacks into Belgorod, the, the western Russian city this week, is a ragtag militia called the Russian Volunteer Corps. Uh, Ukrainians trace their history back uh, to the Russian volunteers who fought with the Azov regiments uh, in 2014 during the first Russian invasion. Uh, and they took place in a cross-border raid into Bryansk uh, earlier this year. So it seems like this this is building up. Uh, of course, the relationship between this group and the Ukrainians is quite murky. Uh, the Ukrainians deny there's any relationship at all. Uh, Denis Kasputin, uh, the leader of this group, uh, saying the Ukrainians have only provided medical aid, petrol, and food. Um, but so we don't know if there's wide-scale collaboration here. But but it certainly seems that uh, behind the scenes, the Ukrainians more interested potentially in stepping up attacks across the Russian border to up their leverage here. Katrina, let me get your perspective on the murkiness that Jack is is describing there. I, I wonder sort of what your sense is of the degree to which that that alignment that I mentioned a moment ago is is perhaps rather direct between uh, the Ukrainian government and, and, and these militia groups? I think certainly any extent to which they do have a relation is very uncomfortable for Ukraine. And they've slightly changed their position over over the last few days. Um, the, the militias, they've said, uh, a, a spokesman for the Ukraine's uh, military intelligence said that militias are acting completely autonomously. Um, but at the same time, uh, the, the, the groups themselves, there are two groups, have said that they do uh, coordinate with the Ukrainians and they make every decision themselves. Uh, but they said that the Ukrainian military wished us good luck, but did not themselves cross into Russia. So I think uh, you know, I, from Ukraine's perspective, 
any help is help. Uh, uh, and it's a very uncomfortable relationship because they're self-avowed uh, neo-Nazis. One of them has a call sign, White Rex. He's not hiding any of that. To some extent, that plays into exactly the kinds of claims Russia has been making. From the Ukrainian side, they say, oh, no, it doesn't. Uh, Russia said we were the neo-Nazis, and actually these people are Russian, even though I think one has been found to have eventually gained Ukrainian citizenship in 2015. Mm. We have had the United States commenting on on all of this, distancing itself from from these border attacks. We have made very clear to the Ukrainians that we don't um, uh, enable or encourage attacks outside Ukrainians' borders. But I do think it's important to take a step back and remind everyone and remind the world that, of course, it is Russia that launched this war. It's Russia that continues to launch attacks on civilians in Ukraine. It's Russia that's targeted schools and hospitals and civilian infrastructure. So it is up to Ukraine to decide how they want to conduct their military operations. But it is Russia that has been the aggressor in this war. Katrina Manson, I'll, I'll come to you now. Sir, if, uh, you heard Matthew Miller there, the spokesperson for, for the State Department addressing this. What do you make of the, the remarks there? Well, I, they, they just do not want to be touching this. They're in a really tricky position. Um, and of course, the, the Russians uh, are spinning this from their side to say the US is clearly involved. And as soon as you can get a line from the US to neo-Nazis, you know, it's game over for the US. So a lot of this plays out in, in a, uh, uh, essentially an information warfare. Um, the US has said they're skeptical of a lot of the claims that the Russians are making. Um, there's a rather extraordinary um, series of Twitter threads about whether some Humvees that have been seen in bomb craters that the Russians say come from these groups and were supplied by the US, whether they are, in fact, uh, complete mock-ups, staged events. And you can see uh, people claiming there are no skid marks. This has been lowered by um, a crane, essentially. So a, a lot of this is playing out as claim and counterclaim really quite far away from what is actually the concrete case, which I think is that any effort to distract the Russians along that border area is probably uh, Ukraine sees as somehow useful. And I think the US sees as really quite dangerous uh, because, of course, NATO allies do not want to in any way be linked to incursions into Russia simply because of the escalatory potential. David Rennie, let's turn our attention to, to Bakhmut and uh, what we heard from Yevgeny Prigozhin, the head of Russia's mercenary group, the Wagner Group, uh, who said this week 20,000 of his troops, his soldiers, were killed while fighting there. Uh, in an interview with a Russian blogger, he said, quote, the Ukrainians are one of the strongest armies. They have a top level of organization, high levels of training, and great intelligence. I'd love to get your reaction to that, those comments from Yevgeny Prigozhin, but also uh, remind us just sort of the, the shell that, um, that Bakhmut is uh, at this point. So there's two extraordinary, horrible stories in one. So Bakhmut, this, this otherwise previously not particularly significant city that became this kind of test of strength, but also, you know, has some military utility as potentially a kind of gateway to bits of the Donbass in the east of Ukraine. But essentially, it became this sort of extraordinarily intense fight that seemed to be out of all proportion with the military importance of the city. And over time, we've seen it become not just a fight between the Ukrainians and the Russians, but this absolutely bizarre and, and still very murky intra-elite fight among Russians. Because as you quote the, the, the founder of this mercenary group, the Wagner group, uh, Yevgeny Prigozhin, he is a former businessman mm -hmm. uh, seen as exceptionally close to Vladimir Putin, who has been doing things like going to Russian prisons, basically with the say-so of President Putin alone, offering recruits, uh, offering convicts the chance to get their freedom if they'll come and fight in these exceptionally dangerous battles, taking this extraordinarily brutal mercenary force to these unbelievably bloody battles and has then been 
publicly denouncing the defense minister, uh, the chief of the general staff of the Russian military for not supplying with the ammunition they needed, accusing them of being responsible for the deaths of his men, saying that they were rot in hell for their actions, and seeming also almost recently to attack Vladimir Putin. So talking about, uh, you know, the potential happy grandfather who thinks everything is going well uh, in the war in Ukraine, which people think is a reference to Putin. And we think we understand that in Russia, if you're an oligarch and you and you criticize President Putin and his inner circle, you end up either drinking poisoned tea or falling out of a window. And yet this brutal mercenary group seems to have pulled off one of the only substantial visible military victories. And so they seem to be for the moment tolerating this amazing war of words that this very, very blood-soaked oligarch uh, has been waging uh, in the fight on Bakhmut. And now he says he's pulling out and letting the Russian regular military take over that city. But he's left himself the option of going back if he thinks he needs to go back and hmm. keep it safe from the Ukrainians. Katrina, let me ask you about this spring counteroffensive we've heard so much about for so many months now. And I wonder just what the latest is on the status of that and sort of the novelty of this being publicized in the way in which which it has. Is this a common thing for a government uh, in Ukraine's position to be talking so openly about its its military intentions? Well, so much of this war has been broadcast in advance, including thanks to U.S. intelligence leaks. So, I mean, they're, they're slightly pinned in, aren't they? But uh, yeah, you're right. This, this uh, offensive was meant to happen in April or May. Uh, it's now looking like it will be summer. And Zelensky's had to even address why it's not happening. I mean, there are a couple of reasons. He is saying he's waiting for equipment. He says uh, Ukraine is mentally ready, um, but but needs to wait on that equipment. Some of that is uh, long-range missiles from the UK. I think there's another element, which is, which is simply the weather. It, it was a long, cold, wet spring. And, and that means it, that makes for mud. And that is not good for huge vehicles. And of course, uh, last year, you saw all those Russian enormous vehicles getting stuck in that mud. So they want to make sure that when they do their offensive, it it, it really does go. And uh, as David mentioned as well, of course, back mud was, in the end, the Ukrainians decided not to surround it and cut it off, but to bleed the Russians as much as they could. And um, that became very much a focus. But one does expect to see it. And of course, the Ukrainians feel under pressure to deliver results, primarily, of course, to defend Ukraine. But they constantly have this eye on how do they keep that supply of equipment, logistics, uh, more and more weapons, more and more sophisticated weaponry coming from the allies. And they want to show success in order to put in their next request. And I'd like to move now to news out of China. On Wednesday, during his trip to Beijing, Russian Prime Minister Mikhail Mishustin said that Russia's relationship with China is at a, quote, unprecedented high. He also said that pressure from Western countries brought the relationship between Russia and China to that high. He was in Beijing to sign agreements that would deepen trade and sports cooperation between the two countries. David Rennie, give us a bit more detail here on what these agreements entail and how strong or how strengthened this relationship is between these two countries. There's no doubt that it's been uh, strengthened greatly by this war. So although China claims to be neutral, uh, to be only interested in peace and to take no view on who should win, since the very beginning, since even before Putin's invasion of Ukraine, uh, China has made it very clear that it sees Russia as an absolutely indispensable ally in a much larger global contest of influence with America and the rest of the democratic West. And since the war began, for all of that talk of neutrality, China's propaganda machine, Chinese officials have consistently blamed the war in Ukraine uh, on NATO, on America, said it's only still going on because American arms dealers are making so much money there and that the victims are the people of Europe, among others, who are paying too much for their energy and their food. 
And this visit by the Russian prime minister, you saw him being welcomed not just by his Chinese counterpart, Li Qiang, and talking about how much trade has risen 40% up uh, since this time last year. And a lot of that is importing a lot of oil, a lot of gas, uh, China getting to pay for that oil and gas uh, in the Chinese currency, which is non-convertible. So that basically means Russians, uh, you know, it's basically binding Russia mm-hmm. in as a kind of dependent partner. But you also saw a meeting with Xi Jinping, and he is the guy who really is the only person who can take important decisions in China. And for Russia's prime minister to see him was a real signal that Xi Jinping continues to sort of align himself with Vladimir Putin. Those deals on trade and sports, they sound a bit kind of technical, but actually even that is a political kind of contest with the with the rest of the world. So why are they talking about sports? Well, what that is, is things like if the Olympics continue to say that Russia can't take part because of things like doping scandals, uh, or if other sporting events uh, ban Russians uh, because of the war in Ukraine, well, China, this giant sporting superpower, is perhaps willing to organize contests with Russia and other friendly autocracies. They talked about having some under the under the umbrella of a group of basically Central Asian and Asian dictatorships. Uh, they also talked about maybe the BRICS, uh, Brazil and Russia and India, China could get together and hold a sporting contest. And that's a real shot across the bows of kind of the global community that you can't isolate Russia because China is very firmly standing behind Russia. Jack Detch, how does this look from the agencies that you cover in, in Washington, covering the Pentagon and, and national security out of out of D.C.? We had this reference from President Biden to, I think, that stupid balloon uh, filled with two tons of, of spy equipment or something of the like a couple of days ago. Um, they're watching all of this unfold, of course, as there is uh, an absence uh, to a great degree of, of dialogue between the U.S. and China. I mean, it's like somebody just opened up another burger joint down the streets from the American McDonald's, right? Uh, the message here from, from the Russians and the Chinese to other countries uh, is they're open for business, uh, especially countries that have stuck with Russia through the full-scale invasion in Ukraine or, or remain on the fence. So your South Africa's, your Brazil's of the world. Uh, basically, they can they can still order off the menu and, and not take a punch. And, and let's remember, one of the key things that's driving uh, China and Russia closer together are, are the oil markets. One of the major effects of American sanctions has been that uh, Russia is now trading their oil at about a 30% haircut. So they want to be able to say to to global powers, uh, you can keep buying from us. uh, We can keep selling to you. Uh, It's going to be fine despite these sanctions. Uh, But the U.S. basically wants to turn people's image to, you know, basically that meme of the dog in the burning room. Everything's not fine. (laughs) Uh, Also this week, China defending its decision to ban products from the U.S. memory chip maker Micron Technology. Here's what Mao Ning had to say on Wednesday. She's a deputy director of information at the Chinese Ministry of Foreign Affairs. The U.S. used national security as a pretext to put more than 1,200 Chinese companies and individuals on various lists and subjected them to all kinds of restrictions, despite the lack of hard evidence of wrongdoing. This is what constitutes economic coercion. This is unacceptable. Katrina, there's the the Chinese perspective on what's happened here. There was this conversation between the Commerce Secretary here in the U.S. and the Commerce Minister uh, in China this week. Uh, Give us the backstory here, first of all, sort of why did China ban products from Micron in the first place? And and what, if anything, constructive came out of those talks this week? I I think it's fascinating because they they, they didn't actually give uh, a concrete 
reason. And when the US Commerce Department came back, they said there's no basis in fact for this. But uh, the, the US doesn't always, is not always particularly forthcoming when they make these claims. And what you've seen over the past months and years is, is China become much more aggressive about lobbying accusations of uh, US cyber misdemeanors, of uh, cyber espionage that, it, that has never previously wanted to admit, almost as if admitting it would be um, accepting a vulnerability. Now you see China really punching out and saying, uh, we, we do not consider Micron to be safe. Now, whether that is the case or not, I think this is absolutely seen in, in, in two veins. One, China has spent the last 10 years trying to become more self-reliant uh, in tech. And tech is really the battleground for this geopolitical rivalry that is playing out between the US and China. And it's interesting that this announcement, although China had begun a review um, several weeks earlier, uh, it did come on the back of Biden saying, I'm expecting a thaw with China at the G7, whilst also saying, we don't want decoupling, but we do want um, de-risking and diversification. I don't think that looks like uh, de-risking to China. I think it looks like an attempt at decoupling. And uh, China largely is is suggesting, I think, that this is a, a tit for tat. And of course, Micron depends in part on the on the Chinese market for its revenues. It's it's come down over previous years. I think everyone might have been expecting this. It used to be worth twenty billion dollars in 2017. Now it's just about three billion. So they will survive. But it is their third largest market, and and it's a blow for a for a U.S. based uh, producer of memory chips. Let's pivot here to talk about the environment. And France has banned domestic short haul flights to cut transportation emissions. The law defines short haul as any destination with a corresponding train journey that is under two and a half hours. World Wildlife Fund has called aviation, quote, one of the fastest growing sources of the greenhouse gas emissions driving global climate change. Uh, Jack Detch, I'll have you give, give, us, give us an update on sort of where this stands. I gather this only kind of is, is related to a couple of routes, three routes uh, in, in France right now. But uh, what does it symbolize? What, what's the importance of this decision? That's right, David. Only three routes, Orly, Bordeaux, Lyon, uh, not, I guess, three, three or four. Um, but, you know, this is, this is significant in, in the sense that, um, you know, France is, is sending out a message that's going to be heard by members of, of the G7 in the West. Uh, take the train. I mean, certainly something that uh, wouldn't be alien to, to President Biden throughout his Senate career, although we'll see whether the United States jumps on board. Um, of course, this is something that would have a, a very small drop in the bu- bucket effect. Uh, we've already seen critics come out and say, look, the big polluter, our, our airlines, our, our long, long-haul flights, uh, people, of course, you know, aren't buying carbon offsets for every uh, piece of baggage and everything that they're carrying on board. So you just have to look at um, really the overall effect, drop in the bucket, but still a, a symbolic gesture um, potentially from the Macron government here in France. Let me, let me stick with what's happening in Europe vis-a-vis climate. And David Rennie, I'll turn to you on this. We had the German government considering a ban of their own, uh, but it's one they can't, can't seem to agree on. A bill to ban gas boilers in new houses is putting a strain on uh, what is an already fragile coalition government there. The bill would phase out oil and gas heating systems in favor of heat pumps as early as next year, slated to pass this March, but parliamentary discussions were, were postponed. Why is this particular bill, this legislation, uh, causing so much tension, so much division within the, uh, the German government? It's causing tension in two different places. It's causing tension in the halls of power in Berlin because you have this uneasy coalition between the centre-left and the Green Party and then a pro-business kind of liberal, uh, sort of pro-business party, basically, in 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 American terms. And the pro-business party has said they don't think this bill is ready for prime time and they want Parliament to spend more time looking at it. But it's a huge 
priority for the Green Party, which of course is has a sort of ecological uh, view of climate change, Germany has made some very big ambitious climate promises. And you can't hit those climate promises if, as now, three quarters of all the homes in Germany are heated with oil or gas. And so what the, the Greens in the coalition have asked for is that from January 1st next year, all new heat systems must be at least uh, two thirds renewable. What that really means is you can't really fit a new gas or uh, oil boiler to heat your home. You're going to have to get probably something like a heat pump. Now, heat pumps, they're really clever technology. They're pretty green technology, but they cost kind of $30,000 and they use quite a lot of electricity and you can't build them everywhere. And what we're seeing is German consumers going, no way, I'm not paying that much. I can't even fit one in my garden. And we're seeing hundreds of thousands of Germans now buying gas boilers right now, double the number being fitted this year. You saw the same time last year because people are trying to beat the ban. And I think pull back from this, what you're seeing is that a country like Germany, which does take the environment pretty seriously, if you ask consumers to pay really serious money to heat their homes in a more green way, then actually the politics gets really ugly. And I think this is a warning for all kinds of governments that have made very, very big, ambitious and, and, and laudable climate promises. But when it hits people in their pocketbook and you tell them they're going to have to pay a lot more money to heat their homes, then the politics gets ugly really fast. Jack Tesh, pick up on that, if you would. Uh, I detect some resonance here to the uh, the roiling debate that took place here in the U.S. just a couple of months back about gas stoves uh, in this country. Yeah, and I, I mean, certainly you see um, the the climate hot stove picking up, right? And and one other place we're seeing it, of course, is is Germany with um, the the road blockades from the Lost Generation protesters. Uh, nothing on the the means of that in the United States, uh, but certainly you know it's it's an issue that has animated the Biden administration when it comes to to climate policy. It's animated the relationship. Uh, with China, so it's something that's you know going going to continue to to impact the United States, and and there's definitely a question of whether these these moves, uh, these short haul flight bans, things like that, are going to have resonance at all in the U.S. policy debate. Well, let's stick with Germany here. On Wednesday, German police raided 15 properties connected to the climate activist group Last Generation, which Jack just mentioned a moment ago. The police seizing assets as part of an investigation into that group's finances. Members of Last Generation have repeatedly blocked roads across the country to pressure the government to take action against climate change. Uh, Jack, you mentioned them. Uh, Give us a little bit more information here on what this group is and the the kind of controversy that surrounds them in Germany. Yeah, well, if you've ever seen a, a protester deface a, a Van Gogh in a gallery or uh, more recently in Washington, uh, protesters smearing the glass around Degas' little dancer sculpture, uh, you've probably heard of, of Last Generation, even if you haven't actually heard the name. Um, this is a group that, that really specializes in disruptive protests. Road blockades are, are a major way they do things. Uh, food up from dumpsters being, being handed out. Uh, and they've gotten more active Uh, over 400 protests in the past year. Uh, The German government really intent on trying to crack down on them this week, raiding uh, 15 properties uh, surrounding this group. So uh, it seems like a a disruption the government's just not willing to tolerate. Um, And this group has a little bit gone uh, under the radar. Some of the the protesters who would be normally talking to reporters or or being out in public uh, now kind of uh, really talking on background, talking anonymously to the press uh, to try and make sure they're they're not uh, hit with legal ramifications. So it seems like this is having some effect on on the group and and these protests, but uh, 
certainly this uh, lost last generation group is is potentially down but not out. Sticking with, with climate, at a U.N. conference on Wednesday, the U.S. promised nearly $524 million in additional humanitarian aid to the Horn of Africa to address the extreme impact of climate change. But uh, of the $7 billion the U.N. has requested, only $1.6 billion has been received. Katrina, you've reported on, on this part of the world. How has climate change impacted this part of the, the African continent? Well, there's so much going on with this particular uh, lengthy drought. This is now uh, the worst drought in 40 years in in this region. And as you say, in, in 2011, 250,000 people died. And, and that was the, 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 the drought that I reported on. And it, and it was devastating to see people managing to survive because, of course, it's not just climate change that uh, that area is affected by. It's also um, the politics of uh, a war in, in Somalia that has been going on for decades. Uh, there's still an al-Shabaab uh, Islamist insurgency that is active. Um, the Ukraine war uh, has sent up uh, commodity prices. So there's a huge amount that people are focusing on. But there is a report out just recently um, from one group of international scientists that does say that agricultural drought is 100 times more likely because of um, burning fossil fuels, because of that impact on uh, on pollution. And in, in a place that is so fragile, uh, politically and and um, in terms of climate, it is just so hard to recover. You've already got 13 million cattle that have died. In the midst of drought now, you have a very cruel um, double whammy, which is flooding because the water simply cannot be absorbed by that very, very dry soil. So it really is catastrophic watching, um, I think it's 20 million people need food and, and, and 40 million people need uh, some kind of assistance. David Rennie, pick, pick it up there. And I mentioned the UN has gotten less than a quarter of the aid that it, that it needs. Um, what would happen if the rest of these funds don't come come soon? Well, I hate to be the kind of the, the, the voice of gloom on this, but it's, you know, it's somewhat similar to the fact that if you ask Germans to pay so much more for their heating, they're not going to actually live up to those ambitious promises. One of the really depressing things about this UN conference on Wednesday, that, as you say, was trying to uh, close this enormous gap between what the UN says is needed to help 30 million people in the Horn of Africa uh, suffering from, as Katrina says, this worst drought on record. Um, when you saw the Secretary General of the, U- of the United Nations, Antonio Guterres, saying people in the Horn of Africa are paying an unconscionable price for a climate crisis that they did nothing to cause, those words, which are intended to kind of uh, prod the conscience of governments all over the world, they just don't seem to have the political resonance that maybe the UN and others hoped they would. It seems that you know global electorates, global governments they really don't see an urgent need to dig deep into their pockets to help these kind of very slow-moving, hard-to-see crises. And certainly the idea that rich countries caused global warming by years of emissions and therefore need to pay poor countries for the effects, that doesn't seem to be resonating as a political argument. But we are going to hear this more and more because uh, more and more places are going to need that kind of help. Well, now some news from down under. Australian Indigenous journalist Stan Grant said he and his family had suffered, quote, relentless racial abuse after he talked during the Australian Broadcasting Corporation's coverage of the coronation of King Charles III about colonial-era violence unleashed on Australia's Indigenous people. On Tuesday, he announced he is stepping away from the media. To those who have abused me and my family, I would just say, if your aim was to hurt me, well, you've succeeded. And I'm sorry. I'm sorry that I must have given you so much cause to hate me so much to target me and my family to make threats uh, 
against me. I'm sorry. I am down right now. I am. But I'll get back up and you can come at me again. And I'll meet you with the love of my people. For more than 30 years, Stan Grant has been one of Australia's most acclaimed journalists. He's stepping away, and that has sent shockwaves through the media. Uh, David Reddy, what did he say during the coronation coverage that brought such vitriol toward him? So he has a weekly uh, talk show on the main uh, publicly funded broadcaster, ABC, and he had a segment about the coronation. So he wasn't a commentator of the kind of ABC coronation coverage, but he had a segment where he talked about uh, the, the role of British colonialism uh, and the sort of devastating role that it had on the Aboriginal and Indigenous populations of Australia. And so he said that, you know, the coronation is not just a kind of distant ceremony to us, that it, it holds weight and it, it kind of the crown, in the name of the crown, terrible things were done that hold a terrible weight that we are still dealing with. And the problem is that uh, Australia has an extremely robust, sometimes toxic, frankly, media culture with uh, very loud commercial stations, particularly kind of right-wing radio talk show hosts and some right-wing TV stations, and they really went for him. This was then amplified enormously on social media, saying that this was a kind of tirade that totally misread the national mood. And I think that there's a kind of real sense of shock uh, among kind of mainstream Australian, particularly in the media, that uh, the ABC, this kind of flagship, kind of like the BBC public broadcaster, didn't seem to be able to protect one of their kind of star presenters from the kind of an incredible backlash that he had to this commentary that I think was, you know, perfectly legitimate uh, political speech about a, an event that clearly looks different uh, if you're uh, an Aboriginal in Australia to, to how it looks to say someone in, in the UK, because Britain's history is long and complicated and it has bright spots, but some very dark patches too. David, a quick question, just sort of pulling back a little bit here. So you have the ABC issuing an apology to Grant saying it's going to examine how racism affected its staff. Uh, later this year, Australia is going to hold a referendum on whether to enshrine in its constitution a, a body to advise the government on indigenous issues. Uh, again, pulling back, put this in the, the broader context about the conversation over uh, indigenous rights in, in Australia today. It's a really good question. I mean, I, you know, my, my first ever foreign posting a, a horribly long time ago was in Australia. And one of the big shocks about this beautiful, uh, advanced, wealthy, proud kind of multicultural country is that it has pockets of really appalling, abject poverty uh, in Aboriginal communities and just has not really reckoned with this. And, you know, you have this centre-left government in, in Australia that is currently saying it's going to ask uh, the people whether to, to amend the constitution, which is a big deal in Australia, to create this new body. But it doesn't get a veto power over government legislation. It gets to recommend and advise. And I think one of the problems that you see for Australia is that so much land was taken uh, from Aborigines that if you actually had kind of perfect justice for the Aborigines who were there before the white colonialists arrived, um, it would be kind of the entire Australian economy would be overturned. And so there's a sense that that is economically and politically not going to happen. But the half steps that have been taken so far don't seem to uh, satisfy the demands for justice from Aborigines, but also seem to enrage uh, some conservative opinion on the other side. So it's really a country reckoning uh, with a kind of a really flawed birth, a great country with a very dark birth. And, and Britain, you know, my country uh, was involved in that from the start. Let's stay in Australia. Prime Minister Anthony Albanese welcomed his Indian counterpart Narendra Modi to Sydney with a warm embrace and heaping praise this week. I said to my friend the Prime Minister before the last time I saw someone on the stage here was Bruce Springsteen and he didn't get the welcome that Prime Minister Modi has got. (laughs) 
Prime Minister Modi is the boss. Katrina Manson, let me turn to you on this. So Canberra trying to bolster its relationship with New Delhi in a bid to grow economic ties, reinforce this strategic partnership. Uh, we've seen this before, Prime Minister Modi going around the world, and there's this huge diaspora, and he's able to get these giant crowds in, in sports stadiums. These two leaders signed deals on clean energy and migration. They had other talks. Um, at the same time, though, the, the, the Australian Prime Minister is under fire for putting that relationship maybe ahead of a crackdown in India on free speech and, and human rights. How did he sort of thread that needle, if, if he did, uh, during those talks this week? Well, he seems to have found it extremely easy to to thread it. He said that him, it's not for him to pass comment on the internal politics of another country. But it, what's so interesting is that Modi did pass comment on the internal politics of Australia. He he um, publicly. Uh, essentially reprimanded re- reprimanded Australia, saying that um, Hindu temples had been destroyed and uh, pointing out support um, b- by Sikh separatists. So while Modi was prepared to talk about issues in Australia, um, Albanese was really steering clear of uh, domestic issues in, of what he called domestic issues in India. And of course, those issues, uh, human rights activists say, are focused on persecuting Muslims and Christians. Um, Modi has an election a re-election bid coming up next year. He's seen as a Hindu nationalist who's restricted uh, media freedoms, cracked down on NGOs, uh, rights activists are in prison. Uh, there have been internet shutdowns. So it's it, it seen as very extensive. But of course, uh, Australia and India are part of this new grouping, the Quad. And that is all about countering um, China. And the, the Quad had a blow because Biden went back to the US to, to deal with his own debt talks issues, his own domestic crisis. And so, it, and Japan then said, well, we won't show up. So really, this was the, the prime piece of political real estate that the Australians could count on. And the Indian position on Russia is also very important because India and Russia have a close defense relationship. And India, to some extent, is the thorn in the side between Russia and China. So there's a huge amount of complication going on there. And I think the Australian, um, the Australians were very keen to to say this relationship can work. Here are the ways in which it will work. We'll focus it on um, talent. We'll focus it on clean energy. Here is what we're going to make work. And and he did not shy away from from what Human Rights Watch said is, listen, quiet diplomacy simply doesn't work. And Katrina, you've been kind of looking at sort of the diplomatic constellation <laughs> that has <laughs> Australia at its at, at its center in your in your recent reporting, looking at this relationship between Australia and the United States when it comes to. Um, defense issues and sort of intelligence sharing. And uh, there is some, shall we say, consternation on the part of Australians about the sort of integrity or strength of that relationship right now. Yes, the Australians are getting louder and louder and more and more fed up with the US on this. And I, I don't think it counts as anything um, strategically wounding in that relationship. But it's certainly interesting to hear these grumbles become increasingly public. Uh, this all relates to the AUKUS security deal. This was the big strategic partnership that was announced back in September 2021 between Australia, the UK and the US, essentially focused on nuclear power submarines that really put France's nose and its own submarine ambitions, uh, sales ambitions out of joint, even recall diplomats at the time. So it's very interesting to see now on Pillar 2, which doesn't deal with nuclear submarines, but deals with technology exchange. This is supposed to be speeding up all the uh, technologies of the future that could one day be used, let's not forget, in combat uh, relating to China, Taiwan, potentially. So AI, quantum, hypersonics, undersea stuff, all of that, the Australians say, is uh, being put at risk because of what one senior, um, the science leader at the Australian Department of Defence told me is death by a thousand 
thousand cuts thanks to US over-involved export controls over classification, simply not working with allies the way the Australians want to see. And and they said that AUKUS was meant to be a battering ram to push through this sort of US export control, which of course is there to protect very sensitive US technology from ultimately leaking out beyond the Australians and the UK. Uh, but it's it's not looking all that pretty. The House heard about it this week. And uh, Michael McCall, who's uh, chairman of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, said that one of the two countries spends 1% of their entire uh, defense budget hmm. navigating US export controls. As we make our way around the globe, Jack Detch, let's stop in, in Brazil. We had that country declaring a state of animal health emergency following the country's first ever detection of avian flu virus in wild birds. Brazil, the largest chicken meat exporter in the world. So far, eight cases of avian flu have been confirmed all in wild birds. Uh, this state of emergency, Jack, scheduled to last for 180 days for about six months. What sense do we have at this point about how this is going to affect, uh, yes, Brazil broadly, but its uh, its economy in specific? It could definitely take a hit. And, and you have to remember, there are only five cases so far declared of, of this avian influenza virus in, in, in wild birds in Brazil, in, including chickens. Uh, so there's going to be a lot of political uproar. Of course, this is a country that just went through a contentious election. Uh, they just had the January 8th protests, which, which very much looked like and, and were probably potentially worse than the January 6th uh, demonstrations, of course, in the United States in in 2021. Um, And it seems like this could have the potential to cause more political uproar, especially when you sort of had uh, kind of the the both sides masking debate uh, over COVID in in Brazil. Of course, Jair Bolsonaro, who who is defeated by Lula, uh, the current president, has, has been somebody uh, very skeptical of, of public health officials, has been very skeptical of the, the reaction by the globe to, to COVID. And of course, he's, he's back in the country now. So this is something the opposition could really hammer Lula on uh, at a time that's very politically sensitive for Brazil. David Reddy, as we wrap up here, let's uh, let's return to Africa. And there were these anti-government protests and violent clashes taking place with security forces gaining momentum in the West African nation of Guinea over frustrations with military leaders overseeing a, a promised return to democratic rule there. Uh, there was a coup back in 2021, removed the long-serving president. What led to this coup? What's happened in Guinea between 2021 uh, and, and today? What are you watching for? So Guinea has some very specific tragic problems. It should be one of the richest countries in Africa. It has a third of the world's bauxite, which is the key mineral that goes into making aluminium. It could be uh, a wealthy country instead of which it's desperately poor. Per capita uh, GDP in Guinea is less than $1,000 per person per year. And since it's been independent from France, uh, it's basically had a series of strongmen rulers. And the strongman who was in power in 2021, he tried extending his rule for a third term. The army staged a coup. Initially, some democratic opposition parties thought that that meant that the army might be a force for good. But then they said, actually, it's going to take us uh, a sweet three years to get round to having elections again. Uh, there was tremendous pressure put on them by some of their neighbors uh, because West Africa in general has had a series of coups. Uh, since 2020, some of them linked to uh, bad weather, some of them linked to, frankly, things like the pandemic and the economic strain that that has imposed. So neighbors put a pressure on the junta, the military rulers, to to, to withdraw the three-year plan and to make it a two-year plan. But then the military junta banned protests. We've seen things like uh, fuel price hikes, because remember, the world is a tinderbox because of high energy prices, yeah. high food prices. And so unfortunately, this country of 13 million people is uh, descending into the kind of pain and agony we're seeing all over West Africa. And that may seem a long way away, 
But that kind of instability can feed things like terrorism and even geopolitics, because in other bits of West Africa, we're seeing the Russians sending mercenaries from that Wagner group we began the show with uh, have been uh, causing all kinds of trouble in West Africa. So unfortunately, all these miseries kind of join up. Katrina, lastly to you here, I just love an update on sort of the status of, of what's going on in, in Sudan. I guess we had the, the seventh uh, week-long ceasefire beginning. Um, what is the status of fighting between uh, both sides? I, I gather that they met in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia this week as well. Yeah, that ceasefire is somewhat holding, but really there, there has been um, fighting. There's fighting in Darfur. Um, there's fighting in the capital Khartoum. So it, it, it is not holding. I think ICRC, um, International Committee of the Red Cross, is still saying they can get to seven hospitals in Khartoum to start delivering humanitarian aid. Uh, the, the condition for people really is just appalling. You've had people starving to death in their homes unable to to leave and get onto the streets. And of course, the resupply is constant. Um, that it, it is a sophisticated fight in the sense that there's artillery, there is military aircraft involved and, and drones. And so far, the ceasefires have mostly helped diplomats get out. So really, the, the issue is, can a ceasefire allow humanitarian aid in? And can any mediation work? And how much really are the mediating partners able to deliver uh, anything from some of the key foreign players who are so involved in Sudan? It's Katrina Manson who covers cyber and national security at Bloomberg News. David Rennie is the Beijing bureau chief for The Economist and the co-host of the Drum Tower podcast. Jack Dash is a national security reporter at Foreign Policy. Thank you all for joining us. Mike Kidd is our sound designer and engineer with help from Kellen Quigley. Chris Castano is our digital editor. Maya Garg is our senior managing producer. Aileen Humphreys is the producer and editor of 1A On Demand. And Barb Anchiano produces our podcast. This program comes to you from WAMU, which is part of American University in Washington. It's distributed by NPR. I'm David Gura. Thanks for joining us. Let's talk more soon. This is 1A. This message is brought to you by NPR sponsor, Progressive Insurance. You call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. Tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options within your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Capella University. With Capella's FlexPath Learning Format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. These days, news comes at you fast. But the truth? Getting there takes time. There's something that hasn't been disclosed yet. Embedded is a podcast that takes the time to look beyond the headlines. How how did this happen? How did we get here? With original documentary storytelling. Listen to NPR's Embedded wherever you get your podcasts.